So many owners open their shops with the dream of doing auto repair the right way, being an asset to their community, having free time with their families, and having the ability to create a financial legacy. In reality, so many find themselves working long days, are struggling to find and keep good staff, and can barely pay the bills. Since 2016, the fastest growing automotive repair coaching company, ShopFix Academy's sole purpose is to stop the average small business from destroying the average family. Call 615-645-3683 to speak to someone on their leadership team about seeing if ShopFix Academy is a good fit for your shop. Learn more at shopfixacademy.com. Having a shop is much like steering a ship in new waters. Your crew is looking to you for leadership. Your passengers trust you to do the right thing, and your family needs you to be successful. But without the right experience, braving these new waters can result in peril, hurting everyone around you and costing you a fortune in money, time, and ultimately your future. Today's guest is Ryan Blair, managing partner of the Simply True Automotive Group. He's going to share his heart-wrenching story of when he shipwrecked his shop and how he recovered and made things right. This is an emotional episode that will help anyone struggling to overcome a huge blow. Stay tuned. Effective online presence is a critical part of your shop's growth and profitability, which is why it only makes sense to use the company that many top performing repair shops use for managing their online presence, Leads Near Me. Leads Near Me effortlessly increases your car count with a strategic combination of killer websites, high converting Google ads, traffic driving social media posts, and more. Reach them by text or call at 888-953-2379 or visit them online at leadsnearme.com. Leads Near Me, effortlessly increase car count. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hi, Thomas. Great to be here. Awesome, man. Um, I've had a couple people from your organization on the show Uh so I'm happy to have you on here. I, I, I know a little bit of your story, and I think it's going to be really important conversation. Uh, so I'm excited to dive in. Absolutely. I'm excited too. Good. All right, man. So uh, for those that don't know you, who's Ryan? Yeah. So my name is Ryan Blair. I'm a shop owner from Dallas, Texas. I'm currently uh, a managing partner in the Simply True Automotive Group, and we have uh, 10 locations and counting uh, in the Texas, uh, Atlanta, and Colorado markets. So I help out over there. I'm uh, head of the marketing department currently, and uh, we're having a really good time. That's really exciting, man. I remember when you guys formed that uh, group, uh, and I have to say, like, all, all you guys that formed that, the leaders of it, uh, y'all are geniuses. And it's so cool to see each of you, uh, you know, contribute to it and, and the fruit that's coming out of it. You guys are nothing short of ballers. I appreciate that. Well, I mean, I think we were all really aligned on what we're trying to do. And we really are trying to 
change the industry and raise the bar. It's very apparent. Tell us a little bit about how you got into the industry. Um, what did things look like in the beginning? You know, I was, you know, one of those kids that just loved cars, um, you know, really got into it at a young age. Oh. And, um, but, you know, I was also unruly and had, you know, attention deficit disorder. And, you know, so I did not do well in school. I was not a very good student. Um, I went to college and I ended up dropping out sort of, being asked nicely not to come back uh, from the university. Uh, apparently, you're supposed to go to class. Uh, but I spent the whole time hanging out with car clubs and, you know, trying to learn about turbos. And so I was just really into it. And when I uh, dropped out of school, I really wanted to pursue uh, a career around my passion uh, with cars. And so I just happened across, uh, I went to Universal Technical Institute, I went through that program. I double phased. Um, I got recruited by the, at the time, the Audi Academy and went and studied uh, with them out in Arizona. Uh, and then I became an Audi technician. So I worked for Audi uh, for almost 10 years and uh, I had a really strong career with them. Um, I really struggled at the beginning. It was tough. You know, I had the you know, the smarts of like how the systems worked, but I just didn't know how to, how to make things work with my hands. So it was really one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life was becoming a uh, high producing technician. It took me two or three years to really figure it out. Uh, but then, you know, I really figured it out, you know, and uh, I think my second year as a technician, I made $26,000. And my third year as a technician, I made $126,000. So wow. I really figured out how to ramp it up. Um, I averaged 400 to 500 hours a month from that point on. Um, I ended up winning the National Audi Technician Challenge. Uh, at one point, that was one of my big goals. And then that's kind of when I realized that you know, I looked off into this horizon of this future for myself, and I saw just a mirror of what I had just experienced the last eight or nine years. And I was like, my next eight or nine years could look exactly the same. And where would I be? And what would that look like? And um, it really kind of scared me, uh, because I didn't, you know, I knew I wanted to push myself, I knew I wanted to do something different. Um, and that's when I decided to, you know, step out on my own and start a shop. And I had a little one bay storage unit uh, that I used to kind of work on uh, some of the family's cars. And my dad had a race car. Uh, we would go out to the track. And uh, so I took over the lease on this little, you know, literally 800 square foot uh, shop. It just had one little office, a bathroom, and then one lift. Um, no air conditioning, you know, no heat. Uh, just, um, uh, and it was in like a locked secure facility. So you couldn't even drive to my shop. If you wanted to, you would have to call me and then I would have to give you a rotating code. And then you would have to enter that code in to open the gate. And I would have to run around the whole lot to wave you down and have you follow me. And of course, everyone else in the storage unit just had junk everywhere and like, it looked like a scene from Mad Max, you know, like, and you're having to weave through cars to get to my shop. And I had two parking spaces, uh, but one of them was taken up by a race trailer. 
And, you know, that was how I got Blair Automotive off the ground. It was just a one-man show with, you know, every possible thing going against me. And, um, but I figured it out one little bit by bit. Uh, I didn't understand pricing. I didn't understand, you know, parts. Uh, I was ordering my parts uh, directly from the dealer and charging the customer cost. I, you know, my first oil change, I had to sublet back to the dealer because my equipment broke. Uh, you know, so I mean, very, very uh, humble beginnings for sure. And uh, really, it was just a vision, a passion to do something better than the way the dealership could do it. And that really drove me. And it's like, man, it, it's going to be hard, but I know I can do this. And so bit by bit, I hired a few people. Um, my twin brother uh, had just graduated law school and he started helping me out and we handed out flyers and we printed out 7,000 flyers and handed them out over a summer. And back then we only worked on Audi Volkswagen. And so we would hand those out in parking lots at gas stations. And uh, we put every single one of those things out and we just grew it up bit by bit, uh, hired a a technician that I used to work with. Um, then I hired another technician. Then we moved into a slightly bigger storage unit. We just kind of got more storage units and kind of cobbled them together. And then I hired an advisor uh, and went back into the shop myself again. Uh, and then a, it was right about that time. So about three years in on this journey that I made the brilliant decision to move my shop into a 20,000 square foot facility. And this was kind of the impetus of how everything went wrong, but also how in the end everything went right. That's quite a leap. Yes. So at the time I was being uh, evicted uh, because I had way too many cars in the storage unit. Uh, they were not happy. And uh, I, I was truly being bottlenecked by the facility for sure. And so I had to make a jump. And at the time, you know, I had very little understanding of, uh, I had no understanding of like the financials, the economics of how this stuff works. Uh, so I would never be able to go to a bank and say, hey, give me access to a, a retail, you know, location. And so I found this uh, flex space uh, in an industrial complex. And uh, the owner of the building, it was an individual, it wasn't a corporation. And I was able to piece together a, a P&L-ish, uh, enough financials to kind of go to him and say, hey, can I get this space? Uh, because I heard a lot of no's. Um, I only had about three months. And there's a whole other backstory where I had a family friend and there was a building and we were going to make that work and it fell through right at the finish line. Uh, he was going to owner finance and he really believed in what I was doing. His partner backed out, leased the property out to uh, someone else. And so I only had two months before I was evicted and I had to find a place. So uh, the place that I moved into was literally the only maybe. Uh, everyone else said no. I looked at about 60 places and uh, the maybe was all I had. And so I had to make it work. Uh, and I actually ended up having to create four different companies 
and piece all of their financials together to have a strong enough financial picture to go to this landlord and get a yes. Uh, he did charge me a triple uh, security deposit because he didn't like me and he didn't like my financials. Um, and then I had to deal with the fact that I was trying to start a shop in this 20,000 square foot building, but then I was also trying to start three other companies at the same time because that was the only way I could get the financing. Uh, so that obviously didn't end up going super well. Um, and then from then on, it just kind of snowballed. I was able to leverage my pretty good personal credit. Uh, and I bought equipment from one bank. And then I bought some loaner cars from another bank. And then I got an SBA loan for the remodel. And none of them knew about each other. And so I leveraged myself to the hilt. Uh, and I had 30 days to get open. I had 30 days of free rent. And so to give you perspective, I was going from a $3,000 a month rent to a $12,000 a month rent, and uh, I had no time. So I was currently operating in the storage unit. I was remodeling, spending money I didn't have to build this garage mahal because I wanted to look cool and, you know, for a lot of other dumb reasons. And I shut the shop down on a weekend. It was July 4th weekend in 2017. And we moved in a three-day weekend, and we were open for business in the new shop uh, that, I think it was a Tuesday. So there was no downtime, uh, but then it was, okay, how do I double my shop, triple my shop, quadruple my shop overnight? And uh, luckily, we, we did grow uh, very quickly, but because I was now facing things that I didn't understand, I had no comprehension of marketing I didn't understand my financials. I didn't understand the impact of those big financial decisions that I had made. Uh, I didn't even really know what the bottom line was. I was just so driven to just move forward and make it happen. Uh, so I was able to execute and, and really make things happen, but I didn't realize what situation I was putting myself in. And that's when, um, that's when things really started to fall apart. Yeah, that's that's a lot of growth really quick. Um, so before you moved into the twenty thousand square foot twenty thousand square foot facility, what kind of revenue were you doing at that? Yeah, so I was running a performance model. So I was doing primarily performance with some you know service and repair, and my biggest month was about um, about sixty thousand. At that point in time, I was, you know, at the beginning of 2017, I had started being, you know, looking for some advice uh, out on the internet and, you know, looking for some potential coaching, but I had not really committed to anything. And um, I did start learning a little bit from what was free, you know, out there. And, um, but I did not really understand how to implement it. Uh, so uh, the decisions I was making, I was really going blind. Um, for sure. I did end up creating these other businesses, um, which were really kind of friendships with people. And I was a, a basically offering free rent in exchange for a percentage of the company. Um, the only company that ended up uh, succeeding and thriving 
uh, ended up being the parts business, uh, which I ended up moving to its own building and, yeah. uh, and it is doing well now. So the other two businesses both fell apart. Um, and, but luckily by then I was able to grow the shop to be able to support yeah. the, the, you know, the overhead. Did any of those contribute to the downfall? It definitely added to the chaos of everything. You know, I had created this big toy box where everybody was having the time of their lives and I was drowning. And, you know, everybody was making money except for me. And everybody was living off of the, you know, sort of the burdens that I had put on my shoulders and uh, taking advantage of that. And so it really contributed having all those other companies there. It really contributed to the lack of a culture, uh, you know, the, the negative culture that ended up, you know, taking root. I mean, we would take days off to play video games. We would, you know, the advisors had PlayStation 4s attached to their monitors so that they could, you know, in their downtime, they could, you know, play video games. We had an actual arcade in our waiting room. You know, if you look back and find some of the older pictures, we had, uh, you know, a Dance Dance Revolution and some shooting game. And, you know, so it was literally like a playhouse. It was a clubhouse and people went there to work. And the only one that was suffering through this was me. And I wanted everybody to like me and I wanted everybody to have a good time. And I wanted us to all really look cool, you know, and all of our customers would come and hang out. And uh, it was just this big hangout fest. And the whole time I was, you know, absolutely drowning in debt. Um, and it just happened so fast, you know, from July of 17 to the end of 17, I was losing on average about $50,000 a month. And, uh, you know, the debt total got to be about a little over a million, one, 1. 1.3 million by the end of 17. And at that point, I was looking for resources on bankruptcy. Um, you know, I had, I had asked my parents for money and they told me to kick rocks. I had asked my wife's parents for money and they unfortunately said yes. Um, I had asked customers for money. So I had all these personal loans. I had you know, re-leveraged all of my credit cards. I still had all of these equipment loans, um, you know, and the rent was always due. And I just, I didn't understand the financials. I, I did grow the shop and we did end the year of 17 uh, at about a million, maybe a little over a million in revenue, uh, but still with massive losses, um, you know, really almost incalculable losses because there were no financials. I mean, obviously losing that much money and, and some of it you're aware of and some of it, you, you it sounds like just there wasn't enough understanding of the financials to really see the impact. How did you know that things were starting to crumble? What did that look like? Yeah, I started to reach uh, certain limits. And so that was uh, really cash flow completely disappeared. And I, I was unable to pay parts vendors. Um, and several times I was unable to make payroll. Um, I was short or, and or behind on a lot of different tax payments. And that's when I realized that I was in a lot of trouble. 
and um, I started, you know, really this, you know, what would end up being a three or four year battle to try to fight my way out of this, you know, but waking up every single day, just being so far behind, you know, it was just this monstrous task to say, okay, am I going to be swallowed by this fear today? Or am I going to take action? Am I going to try to move through this? And, you know, those were really my only two options. And it was a, it was a crushing amount of, of debt and, and really more so a crushing amount of fear. And that's really what really hardened me and sharpened me was realizing that, you know, it wasn't going to kill me, but it was going to hurt really, really bad. And I had a choice. And so that's when I started reaching out for help. And I really, really needed it. Ryan, let's talk a little bit about some of the other consequences. Um, I mean, obviously having that much debt, you're waking up, you have this terrible fear, you're trying to borrow money, you're hitting limits. Uh, What were some of the other consequences that you experienced in this time? Yeah, it it got really hard. Um, you know, things, things got really dark. Um, you know, I knew that I had to make certain decisions, uh, to, to even have a chance. And, uh, so I made some of those calls, but, uh, the pain was, uh, the consequences of those decisions were maybe even more painful than, you know, the financial consequences. Um, you know, when I wasn't able to make payroll, you know, I would either swipe a personal credit card or I would, um, you know, and one of my darkest moments, I, I stole my wife's 401k and it was the last thing that we had, you know, we, you know, before I started the shop, uh, we owned several rental properties. Um, you know, we had done pretty well. We had both built up some, you know, uh, 401ks and some Roth IRAs and, you know, by the end of that year, we had sold our house. Um, we sold all of our cars. I moved into an apartment uh, during the construction uh, phase, so right in that July time. And the apartment was across the street, and I just started walking to work. Um, you know, I didn't have a car. Uh, I took my wife's car, which she loved, and I traded it in on loaner cars. Um, so you know, from her perspective, it was, I just lost my house. I just lost my cars. Uh, I we've, he's taken everything. There's no money left. There's no savings. There's literally nothing. Uh, and then she finds, she gets a notification, uh, that I just drained her 401k to make payroll. And it was really one of the lowest moments in my life. And, um, you know, it's something that I'll never forget. You know, when you, when you look at someone that you love who trusted you to take care of them, to support them, to keep them safe, um, and you just see betrayal, um, you know, it was something that I never, I never wanted to experience that again, you know, and I, I knew in that moment that the consequences of what I had done were, you know, uh, way bigger than what I had thought and that I had to do something different. I had to make my way out of this and I, I had to redeem myself. 
Ryan, I'm very honored by your transparency and really being vulnerable and sharing the depth of the pain. Uh, I really believe that there's people listening right now that are going through a version of this or even a similar situation and uh, and needed to hear that they're not alone. So thank you for for bringing that to us today. I'd like to also talk about, you know, you're having these huge ramifications at home uh, and experiencing tremendous pain. What was this like for your employees as well? I mean, I'm sure that they're at this point starting to see things crumble. Um, what what did that look like? Yeah, I think um, that was one of the the bigger consequences and one of the eventual bigger lessons that I end up learning about, you know, in my leadership journey was that when, when you're going through a lot of pain, it's very easy to put that pain down the line, put that pain down onto your team. And, uh, the truth is, is that they can't bear that burden. And when you attempt to put your pain onto them, it really goes poorly. Um, they end up rejecting it outright. I had a lot of people quit um, uh, who I thought were my best friends. Um, You know, when I started trying to hold people accountable to things because I had to, because there was no money, you know, we needed to execute. Um, All of a sudden, you know, these people that were in my wedding um, were, you know, getting laid off, getting fired, quitting, um, you know, I lost, you know, in that time of my life, I didn't just lose all of my money and nearly lose my family. I, I lost all of my friends, uh, who I had worked with at the dealership, you know, for nearly a decade and decided to bring them on this journey with me. And in my mind, I had failed them too. Um, you know, and they needed to go back to finding places that were more stable and secure. And, um, it, it was really, really a a difficult time. And the, the culture that existed was one that I just let exist, uh, in the absence, in the vacuum of absolute or strong leadership. Uh, and I was so broken and so afraid that I was not able to lead, uh, at that time. And, you know, it, everything really, it almost looked hopeless, you know, honestly, you know, people are quitting, um, you know, the, you know, the credit cards, they're not working. Uh, the government, you know, is trying to shut me down. You know, I, I, at that point I realized I had to pay taxes on the assets that I had purchased, uh, business, personal property tax. Um, the school district, uh, sued me, Um, you know, it was just an overwhelming amount of things, you know, you can withstand getting hit from one direction, um, when you're braced and you're really strong and you're prepared, but getting hit from every direction all at the same time just creates this huge amount of overwhelm. And it truly does feel, um, it does feel impossible, uh, to break free from in that moment. Was there a point that that you look back and you're like, this was the rock bottom? I definitely think that, you know, it was 
there were several rock bottoms that sort of hit very close together. There was a a paradigm shift, you know, when when I realized very clearly that all of the things that I had done and what I was doing was not working. And I knew I needed to do something different. And I think for the first time in my life, I was willing to admit that I didn't know what I was doing and that I needed to take that vulnerability, that insecurity, and I needed to go get in front of some people and, you know, seek wise counsel, as they say. And that's when I realized that if I'm going to have any chance at all in this thing, I'm going to have to get some help. I'm going to have to get some coaching. So what did that look like for you? Yeah, so I kind of, you know, I started doing some research online and found my way into, you know, a Facebook group where I was kind of lurking and, you know, I made a few posts and, um, you know, I had uh, a coaching company reach out to me and say, you know, really, I can tell that you're in pain. You know, all my posts were about how awesome I was, right? But this uh, coach, uh, at the time it was, it was Aaron Stokes, he, he saw right through it. Um, and he saw that there was a lot of pain behind that boasting uh, that I was doing. And he just called it right out. And he was like, man, I'm worried about you. I, you know, let me know if there's anything I can do. And, you know, of course, I, I was proud and I didn't want to admit uh, how bad the situation was, but I knew I had to do something. And so uh, I decided to, to give coaching a, a shot. And, um, you know, that was the beginning. I would say the real beginning of my journey to, uh, get to the other side of this and to, you know, get to where I'm at today. From what you're telling me, it sounds like that, you know, through, you know, the last season, you know, there was this, you know, rugged individualism happening. Um, if that's true, how easy or hard was it for you to start taking feedback from other people? Yeah, I think, um, the circumstances were so dire and the consequences so high that I realized that there was no room for my ego anymore and that I needed to get real, real quick. And I'm thankful for that because it was the level of vulnerability that I was able to exhibit that truly allowed me to hear what I needed to hear so that I could make the changes that I needed to make. And if I was still holding on, or if maybe the consequences weren't that severe, you know, I may have resisted, I may have, you know, let those belief systems that led me to that position continue to run my life. Um, but I'm truly thankful for the fact that I was, I was in such a bad place I really had no option but to try to do something different and move forward. And I knew that the key to that was vulnerability. And so really uh, very uncomfortable for me, um, but it was one of the most powerful things that I've ever experienced was not only being able to be vulnerable around a group of supportive people and other shop owners, but 
the fact that all that support started pouring in and that I was accepted for what I was or for who I was instead of who people, who I wanted people to think I was. And that was a, a huge shift for me. You were seen. Absolutely. I was seen and it was terrifying, um, but it was also beautiful. In my experience and what I've observed, I think being seen is one of the greatest gifts that we can give another person. So you're, you're being vulnerable. You're, you're really for the first time being seen for who you are and what you bring to the table. Uh, but, but yet you have this absolute monster, um, that's, that's eating you alive. What were some of the practical things that you started doing to fight that monster? Absolutely. You know, I was given, um, I was given a lot of great advice and a lot of it I outright rejected. You know, my, my instant, you know, response or reaction was to reject it because, you know, we, we have all these beliefs about the way things are supposed to be. And then the second that we get confronted with that, with opposing views, our immediate reaction is to, you know, reject it. And uh, so I spent, you know, I spent about a week or two, uh, thinking, man, there's no way I can't do this. This is impossible. You know, they're asking me to do things that just aren't realistic. And, uh, I realized that all of those things, I just kept hearing all these voices over and over again in my head that were saying all these negative things. And I realized that, man, this isn't real. The, the, what I had created, you know, around these false belief systems just wasn't, real and that I needed to start rethinking everything. You know, it was this crazy paradigm shift where like in a, in a, just this moment, I realized that I didn't know anything and that I needed to learn as much as I could. And once I got that out of the way, then I was like a sponge. And so Practically, what it looked like was, well, I needed to get a handle on my financials. So I had to learn my financials. I, I built my P&L or rebuilt it by hand using you know, credit card statements and bank statements. I built a, a cash flow spreadsheet so that I could understand. You know, at the time, you know, Thomas, it, you know, I didn't even realize it. You know, but I've got forty to fifty thousand dollars in principal payments. You know, there was a period of time where I had to make sixty to seventy thousand dollars of net profit in a month to have a cash flow zero. Because not only am I having to make these principal payments, but then I'm having to pay taxes on the money that I'm using to make these principal payments. Uncle Sam thought I was doing great, and I was I had nothing. And so, it was step by step. It was uh, learning the financials. It was recognizing that I had to start building a culture. I had to start building a team that was aligned with a vision. I had to uh, grasp, you know, the concepts of ARO. You know, I thought I just needed more cars, and I'm running a Euro specialty shop with a ninety dollar effective labor rate and a four hundred ARO and wondering why it's not working. You know, I had to change, you know, my understanding of my pricing. I had to start valuing myself. I had to get teammates and and hold them accountable to standards. 
which is something I had never done. And, you know, so on the outset, it looks like an impossible amount of work. And at the beginning, I truly did think it was impossible. But then once you kind of break through those layers, you realize one layer at a time, all of a sudden, it becomes clearer and it becomes clearer and it becomes clearer. And then you're kind of able to see a way out. And so, you know, for me, that's, that's how it worked. There was, there were no excuses. There was, there was nothing else I could do. No one else was going to give me any money. You know, the only way out was through and I had to, you know, go, you know, to the ends of, you know, what was possible to make that happen. And so that looked like, you know, I turned wrenches, I, I worked on my front counter, I sold work, I, uh, you know, I did whatever it took, you know, I worked 16 hours a day, seven days a week. And I, I was not going to fail. It, it just wasn't an option. And because I knew that, um, you know, everything else started falling into place. So, um, but it's really interesting, you know, at a certain point, I realized, okay, I'm starting to turn this thing. And, and there were these moments where you're like, man, I've been working for, you know, six months or a year of doing all the right things, and still being so far away, you know, and I remember thinking at one point in time, I was like, man, I just wish that I could be worthless, that I could be worth $0. You know, like if I could just become worth nothing, as crazy as that sounds, then I will have made it, right? Because you, you, you're so far behind and you're under all that pressure. You, this idea, you know, the idea of becoming a net worth zero dollars, that was like the ultimate freedom. That was like breaking through the ceiling, uh, for me. And so I set that as my goal. Um, as weird as that sounds, my goal was to become worthless. Um, and I worked as hard as I could. I made the right decisions. Uh, and I listened and I didn't hold on to things and I questioned everything. Why do I think this? Why do I think that, you know, mailers don't work? Why do I think that, uh, I'm not allowed to ask for what my parts are worth on the front counter. Why do I think that technicians, you know, can't get paid uh, on a commission structure? You know, like there are these so many layers of beliefs that I had to work through and uh, I just had to work through them. And so I listened, I became vulnerable, I executed and um, I worked really hard. And I sacrificed a lot in that time of my life, um, you know, and, but eventually, you know, all of those decisions, all of those actions, they started culminating in success. Uh, and there was a time uh, where I'm, you know, very proud to say, I don't, I don't think it was actually until 2019, but there was a time in 2019 where I, I reached my goal of, of becoming worthless. And, uh, you know, I had my vision board and the top of the mountain was the big number zero and I, I made it. And from that point on, you know, everything was a whole lot easier. 
I'm fascinated by this concept of net zero. Can you can you explain just I, I want to make sure I understand it, make sure the listeners understand it. Practically, what does that actually mean? Did you know that some web design companies use the same wording across all their client sites? Unfortunately, this common practice is noted by Google as plagiarism, which will cause your site to be ranked lower. That's why it's critical that whoever makes your shop's website knows better. That's why so many top shops trust leads near me to create and manage their shop's websites. As Google certified partners, they know how to make a top ranking website from an insider's perspective. Get a free site analysis by visiting leadsnearme.com or calling 888-953-2379. Leads Near Me, effortlessly increase car count. Yeah, basically what that means is that my combined assets um, were worth more than my combined debts. So uh, on a balance sheet, my, my equity my value plus my personal assets. So everything combined, I became worth more than a dollar. And the reason why that was such a big deal is because when you're staring at a balance sheet with a with a negative $1.3 million equity, you realize that, man, that's a that's a big hole to climb your way out of. And you know, I had to create these these mantras, you know, to fight against the fear, to fight against just the irrational thoughts that would happen. Because when you wake up with that much debt every day, you're just immediately saddled with it. And so I had to find a way to fight back. And this idea, this beacon of being able to break free from this debt, that was what drove me. And I knew that I had to be patient. I knew that it was going to be a long road. And I, I don't do patient well. Um, and that was another big lesson that I had to learn is that you can do all the right things and do everything right. And you can still be years away from where you want to be, you know, in quotes. But I, I knew that I had to get there. And so I, I had these uh, mantras, you know, and one of them was, Every day, I am financially better off than I was the day before. Like today, I'm in a better financial situation. So maybe I went from negative $900,000 to negative $895,000. But today, I made progress and I'm better off today than I was yesterday. And that, it kept me moving and it got me out of, you know, what Mike Michalowicz talks about, which is the survival trap where, you know, you're so full of fear that you start moving and making decisions away from your vision. And I had to do something to gain clarity so I could start moving towards my vision, towards this mountain of becoming debt free, of becoming, you know, a net worth zero individual. Um, you know, and obviously I thought it was funny. Um, you know, that I wanted to become worthless and, you know, it was clever and all that. And, uh, but it just really drove me. And I realized that it was possible. Um, once I got a handle on it, once I kind of started turning the tide and then there were times where, you know, I got hit with blows, you know, unexpected things and you have to reset. And there were times where I slid backwards down that mountain and I had to retrace my steps and climb back up. You know, this wasn't an easy path, you know, it was about, it's about two and a half years um, 
two and a half to three years almost to finally reach a point where my net worth, my combined assets were worth the same as my debts. And then even then, again, you're not in the best position, but it was just such this huge goal. And there was just such a sense of relief that I could at that point in time, if I wanted to, I could walk away. I was no longer bound to it. I was no longer, you know, because that was a huge fear of mine was, you know, I'm going to have to quit this shop or, you know, go under, but I'm a man of honor. So I'm going to pay back all of my debts. And, you know, I used to think like, I used to calculate, you know, is it going to take me 10 years? Is it going to take me 20 years? Is it going to take me 30 years of turning, you know, 400 hours a month at the dealership to pay this debt off? And so once I reached that moment, it was such a huge sense of relief. And, and then it became like, well, what can I do? You know, what's next? And it was like I got to the, the top of this mountain and I realized that I was just at the very beginning of my journey and the very beginning of, of what's possible. I, I've observed that people that go through massive transformations, uh, sometimes it it takes some time for the people that walked with you through that season um, to really catch up to where you're at. And, and maybe there can even be some, some trust issues or, um, or fear. I'm wondering if you experienced any of that in this process of you transforming. Absolutely. I think, you know, we're in the front row seat of our own transformation. And so we see it before anybody else. And, and then we do have to regain that trust of the people around us. Um, you know, it was years and years of, uh, you know, long conversations, you know, my wife, I ended up having to, you know, come clean with her and, and she ended up, you know, essentially doing financial reviews for the company. And so I would have to give her financial updates on what was going on with the company, where we were at, you know, what was the situation with the debt, you know, to regain that trust, I had to show her, you know, this is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. This is how we're going to get there. You know, this isn't just me saying it. Here's the evidence. Here's, here's what we're doing. And, you know, it took many, many years to regain that trust and to provide, you know, financial security, you know, for the people that I that I cared about people that I loved. Um, and the same thing with the employees, you know, I now had this new vision. I, I was working on my leadership, but it was still a struggle, you know, because there were still employees there that remembered, they remembered how hard it was. They remembered the times where, you know, I had to go in there and say, Hey guys, like if we don't, <laughs> if we don't make another $20,000 today, like I, I don't know what we're going to do. And you know, that wasn't, that long ago, you know, at that time. And so there was a lot of trust that had to be rebuilt. And that was done through through discipline and execution and consistency. And I had to show them that I was taking the steps, that I was taking the action that needed to be taken to get results. And then we would get results and then I would continue to take that action and then continue to cast that vision. And as I became stronger as I increased my ability, I was able to get people more attached to that vision, gain that trust, and then really start to build a, a pretty awesome culture uh, in the organization. 
and then from then, you know, momentum is an incredible thing. You know, when you get it going, it starts to do a lot of the work for you. So it took many, many years to kind of jumpstart that engine. But once it started going, uh, it really sort of took off on its own. Yeah, it's amazing to me. People that that have overcome tremendous adversity, uh, there's a phenomenon that I've observed where the restoration really results in a in a situation and, and in that person being unrecognizable from even before whatever the rough season was. And, you know, hearing, knowing where you are at now uh, and then hearing what you came from, it sounds like that's very true for you as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, who I thought I was, was a, a culmination of beliefs and belief systems that almost led me to bankruptcy. And it, it was the process of moving through those and realizing that there was something else, that there was something better, that there was something actually true uh, that I could become. Um, that process, that's the process of life. That's that's the the human story and that's you know what we're all working on and i just happened to be going through you know a crucible you know in a shop but really this is this is what all great change and great transformation comes from is having to face whatever dragon it is that you have to face in your life um and facing it straight on and going through it to see really what's on the other side of that and that's um that's a journey that we're all on did you buy your wife some cars and a new house <laughs> we um so yes you know the shop uh it did start to have some success and um, you know i think we i think we ended 2018 around you know maybe 1.6 million still huge amount of debt 2019 i think we did about 2 um, you know, 20, we kind of stagnated. We did about two, but we paid off a lot of debt and, you know, we were starting to kind of get on the other side of everything. Um, you know, and then, you know, COVID hit and we, uh, that actually became a huge launching platform for us. Um, at that point, we just, we had so much, uh, going in our favor. We were nimble. Uh, we knew how to gain market share. We knew how to play the game. Uh, we really became an unstoppable shop at that point in time. And so we uh, we grew to about, I believe, 3 million in 20 and then about 4 million in 21. And then uh, we ended the year at about 6 million uh, in 22 uh, on, you know, European service and repair. And we really ended, you know, we are now currently the largest single uh, independent European repair shop in the country. And so all of that was, you know, part of that momentum and just building on these same lessons and executing on them. And so, yes, so um, we have, uh, we just moved into a new house. Um, we love it. Uh, it's in a, you know, great neighborhood. Um, I did just get uh, the wife a a nice car. She's got a, an Audi SQ7. Um, and, you know, and I am able to provide that 
financial security and financial stability. Uh, and, and, and it's still a little rocky, you know, I think sometimes she doesn't almost believe it still, um, you know, because it was so hard for so long, you know, yeah. you know, for years she supported me, uh, through this. Um, and, and I wasn't making any money from 2014 to 2017 either. I just wasn't losing money like I was <laughs> at the big shop. So, I mean, we're looking at, you know, it's been eight years almost, um, where she's had to support me. And so, but it does feel really good to be able to, uh, kind of redeem myself and, and show that I was able to work through this. I was able to pay, um, uh, pay back her parents. I was able to pay back, um, all of my customers that I borrowed money from. Um, I was able to pay down all of my debts. Um, so every debt that I took out in 2017 has been paid off. Um, you know, and I, I've been able to do that, um, by, you know, just, working the program, just doing what needed to be done. Um, you know, really the most practical thing for me was understanding the financials, understanding, you know, what we talk about, uh, as the front of the step and the back of the step, but really just understanding this concept that you have to outrun your overhead. And, um, you know, that one fundamental really is what allowed me to get to where I am today. And, and it allowed me to have the opportunity to join this uh, partnership and open up other shops and other parts of the country and opening up more shops in uh, Dallas soon. And, you know, and that's a whole new journey. And it's this whole new uh, plane of, you know, ways to challenge myself, ways to face things that are uncomfortable, new dragons to slay, and, um, you know, new ways to increase my ability and really see what I'm capable of. And I'm really, really excited about, uh, what we're doing. And, you know, uh, our, our goal is a, is a hundred shops in the next eight years. And I have no doubt in my mind that we're going to accomplish that. I don't have any doubt either. I, I you and that team are amazing. And each one of you is a force and each one of you, um, you know, went through your own things. Your story is amazing. Like I said earlier, I, I don't, there, there's very few people that have gone to the depths that you've gone through. And there's even fewer people um, that really got out of those situations. And, you know, just want to honor you for the hard work you put in. And uh, yeah, I, yeah, uh, this has been an amazing conversation. I have one more very important question for you. Okay, I'm, I'm ready. If you were a car, what kind of car would you be? Oh, man. You know, I'd have to say uh, that I'd be a, a Mark 7 2019 Golf R Spectrum in Cliff Green because, you know, it's not, not very reliable, but it's pretty quick. Um, <laughs> and... It's really flashy, and but it's practical and uh, a lot of fun. So that's that's what I would be, you know. And I'd be tuned up too, you know. Oh, I, no doubt. Uh, <laughs> what one thing that I really enjoy about you is uh, uh, last time I saw you, you had two watches on, 
And one yes. was for show and the other was for being practical. And uh, yes, that the car answer makes sense with, with, with that too. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit flashy and I'm a little bit practical. I, I'm somewhere in between, um, you know, and, and that's just part of my, uh, personality. So, yeah. Well, man, again, wonderful conversation. Really loved having you on the show. And, uh, you know, again, one honor the transparency you share with us. And I, I really believe that there's people that are going to hear this and have breakthrough and, uh, yeah, we'd, we'd love to hear some of those stories if people want to write in about that. Uh, Ryan, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Thomas. Thanks for having me. That was my interview with Ryan Blair. I want this show to serve and impact as many people in our industry as possible. To help me in that mission, please leave us a review, subscribe to the show, and tell others about us. If you'd like to contact me, you can email me at thomas at slcautopodcast.com or call 615-656-8804. And a special thanks to our podcast sponsors, Leads Near Me and ShopX Academy. We appreciate your support. No two shops are the same. That's why cookie cutter advice and coaching does not work. In order for your shop to get to the next level, you must have an action plan designed around your shop's unique needs. You'll also need accountability and encouragement along the way. Let ShopFix Academy help you create your best shop. Call 615-645-3683 to speak to someone on their leadership team about seeing if ShopFix Academy is a good fit for your shop. Learn more at shopfixacademy.com.